Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. In a world where self-identifying as a Christ follower draws criticism, exclusion, and persecution, it's important for us to remember the words of our Lord. He said, we are salt and we are light. But what does it mean to be salty and shining? In this message, my hope is that you'll be challenged to stick with Jesus, even when others pressure you to conform to new ways of thinking and living that go against what our Lord said. Because after all, I believe today is your day. You are the one God has in your home, your neighborhood, and your workplace. So be salt and be light. Here now is episode 436, Salt and Light. Let me begin by telling you my point. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's my major point. So we have a salt shaker and a light bulb, and I want that to be you. You are the salt shaker. You are the light bulb. And if you leave here thinking to yourself, I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world, and I'm going to stay salty, and I'm going to shine my light, I will have accomplished my goal. Not that you will look at Ruby and say, well, Ruby's the light of the world. I mean, look at her. She just brightens every No, 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 no. Maybe that's true. That's a good thing. I want you to say it for yourself. I want you to personalize the saltiness and the brightness to yourself. And look at that as your calling. This is a calling for all of God's people in our time. Uh, so let's start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. My goal is pretty simple. I've got about half a dozen verses to look at with you this morning. This is just a small little section from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount goes for three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're just looking at six verses or seven verses. So it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Look, if you're a knucklehead, if you rob the bank and then you get in a car wreck when you're trying to flee the scene and then somebody steals the money from you and then you still go to jail and pay a fine, you deserve it. You robbed a bank. There's no blessing on you if you do unrighteousness and then you suffer. You're supposed to suffer if you do unrighteousness. That's just the way the world is kind of wired in some sense. That's not what this is talking about. This says in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. This is if you're doing the right thing and then you suffer persecution. If you pay your taxes late and then the IRS bothers you, that's not for righteousness sake. That's not persecution. That's just you breaking the rules and then suffering the consequences. We're talking about when you do the things of God, when you do what you're supposed to do, and then you're persecuted. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew, this is a distinctive phrase, kingdom of heaven. The other 65 books of the Bible, if they mention this phrase, is kingdom of God. And it's the idea not that we go to heaven, but that heaven's kingdom comes to earth. 
and that God's reign will be here as it is in heaven, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is what you get if you suffer, if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. And we live in a strange time. You know, there's so much going on right now. I don't want to depress you too much. But, you know, I was driving down through Troy the other day. And it's like every, uh, not even every other, there'd be like two businesses that are closed for every one that is still open right now. And then the ones that are open are all short-staffed. We went out to uh, dinner and, you know, the, the bartender's out waiting on people outside where usually you'd have servers waiting on people. They don't have enough staff to, to cover everything. It used to take 15, 20 minutes to get a, get a nice dinner. Now it's 45 minutes and uh, you shouldn't complain because at least you got something. Uh, so <laughs> the McDonald's this morning didn't have my breakfast burritos, you know? I mean, just a sign of the times that we live in, real suffering. But yeah, I mean, our world is, just, is, is, is really amped up. There's a lot of uh, polarization. I saw an article this morning in the, the Gospel Coalition by Brett McCracken, who, who writes, we live in an all or nothing, us or them times. You feel that? He continues, you're either all with us, towing the party line on every front, or you're with them. You're either trustworthy because you agree with us on everything, or you're totally untrustworthy and a dangerous threat, even if simply because you dissent from us 5% of the time. We live in a tribalistic, polarized, fractured kind of world right now, where in the old days, I kind of longed for the old days of the coexist bumper sticker. You remember this stupid bumper sticker? <laughs> I remember when I used to see this bumper sticker, and, I, and I, I always kind of felt like it was a challenge to me. Not because the cross is in last place. The last shall be first. Our Lord said that, right? <laughs> the reason why I always didn't like this bumper sticker, I don't know what your opinion is of it, was because it was almost like... It was almost like all the religions are equal paths to God and just like don't evangelize, don't try to tell anybody, just keep it to yourself. You know, I don't, maybe I'm just reading that into this, I don't know, but I never really liked this bumper sticker. But lately I'm thinking, man, the coexist bumper sticker days were pretty darn good. Like they were trying to get us to tolerate each other and just exist and not kill each other. Whereas, like, today, I don't even know what the bumper sticker would be. It'd probably just be two words, you're wrong. And, and, and there is no sense of like, uh, hey, let's understand each other or let's tolerate each other. The sense is much more what Nietzsche taught years ago where everyone wants to grab power and the question is not like, how can we get along? But it's like, how can I get my boot on your neck so that you submit to what I want? That's the time we live in. And so in a time like this, persecution is very much possible. And it's Gay Pride Month, if you didn't know. So there's a lot of businesses promoting Gay Pride Month. Uh, Facebook changed its logo to a rainbow. Google Calendar put Gay Pride Month on my calendar, and I tried to hit the delete button because I don't celebrate Gay Pride Month as a holiday, and uh, it would not let me delete it. And then I got an email from the Ultimate Frisbee organization, which hasn't literally done a single thing in two years. And uh, their first communication was to me that, it's LGBTQ plus month, and we support this. And I'm thinking to myself, I have never once, while throwing the Frisbee on the ultimate Frisbee field, 
I have never once thought to myself, oh, I wonder if this person is a, what their sexual orientation is. It's like, does that even come across your mind? No, you're, you're like, are they going to catch it? I don't care if they're a lesbian or straight or what, you know, like, are they going to catch it when I throw them the, the disc? But, uh, you know, there's all this pressure. Meanwhile, I'm standing over here and I'm like, you know, I just, I have this, I have this intuition that the creator of human beings really knows the operating manual, what he designed as far as sexuality is the best way to do things. And uh, so we read in verse 11 here, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I kind of feel that a little bit today. Do you feel that a little bit? It's not so bad, if you know history. It's not so bad. They're not rounding us up and executing us in mass, right? It's not so bad. But, you know, I, I feel this sense of that, what is it? Revile, persecute, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I feel that even just saying I'm with Jesus is taking a risk, in our society today, more than it has been in the past. There's really two sides to this. One side of it says, okay, I don't want to do that. I want to blend. I want to blend in. I can do Christianity better than Jesus. I'm going to blend in and not suffer persecution. To those people, I say, good luck. Good luck, because Jesus said, look at verse 10, Blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, blessed are you when? Anybody have if there? I know there's different translations. It says when in my Bible, right? It says when others revile you and persecute you all. So Jesus, first of all, Jesus was reviled and persecuted, excluded, made fun of, right? And he says, well, when they do that to you too, it's good. Look at that, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus expected his followers would suffer persecution. I'm not saying go out and be weird for the sake of being weird and offend people just so that you get popped in the mouth. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you be faithful to Jesus, and you should expect that you are, at times, going to be persecuted. And when that happens, it's good. Rejoice. Because that means you're like one of the prophets. You read those prophets in the Old Testament? I read those prophets in the Old Testament, I think to myself, oh, if I could be like Isaiah, man. Or I read those prophets and I say, oh, if I could just be like Moses. Whew. Well, Jesus is saying you can be like Isaiah. You can be like Moses. You can be like the prophets of old because that's what they went through as well. I really appreciated how Richard Hayes put this in his book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament. He wrote, The Beatitudes pronounce Jesus' blessing upon those who are meek, merciful, and pure, those who make peace, and particularly those who suffer for righteousness' sake. The counterintuitive paradoxes of the Beatitudes alert us to the fact that Jesus' new community is a contrast society, out of sync with the normal order of the world. Look, it's supposed to be like that. You're supposed to contrast to the society. 
That's always been the case with those of us who follow Jesus. Sure, you can believe in Jesus and then fit in with any society. But if you actually follow his teachings, you're going to stick out. You're going to be out of sync. What sense does it make to say, Hayes continues, blessed are those who mourn. You ever think about that? Happy are the miserable? Like what? <laughs> Such a judgment can be made only in view of the eschatological or end times promise that accompanies it, for they will be comforted. The community of Jesus' followers lives now in anticipation of the ultimate restoration by God. They do not seek to enforce God's way through violence. Rather, they await God's act of putting things right. To be trained for the kingdom is to be trained to see the world from the perspective of God's future. And therefore, askew from what the world counts as common sense. If you're going to live the teachings of Jesus... If we're going to be salt and light, then we are at times going to be weird. That's what this is saying. You're going to be different. At times, people are going to look at you and say, it doesn't make any sense what you're doing there. Right? This is, this is expected. They did this to Jesus. They did this to the prophets who were before him. This is normal. In Matthew 5.13, we read, you are the salt of the earth. The reason why I wanted to start with the two verses before this is because he has just talked about persecution, and now he talks about salt and light, and I believe those are connected. I believe if you're going to be salty, you're going to suffer for it, and if you're going to be the light of the world, you're going to face consequences for it. I don't think it's by accident that he followed that up with this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, based on the concern for losing its taste, I think we can conclude that Jesus' point here is talking about flavor, not uh, preservation or some of the other theories that people have. Other references to salt in the Bible, there's no mention of preservation as being, you know, we know that that was something they did in their culture, but it's not mentioned in the Bible specifically. There is a lot of association with salt and wisdom. There's an association with salt and sacrifices, where they put salt on the sacrifices in Leviticus. Uh, and certainly seasoning, everybody knows what salt tastes like. Think about it for a moment. Can you taste salt in your mind? You know what it tastes like. It's got that sharp exciting zing to it. So Jesus says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now the question I have is, what flavor do we bring to the earth? What flavor do we bring to the world? And if you look at the verses that came before this, he has already listed out a bunch of these virtues. We didn't have time to look at it, but he talks about humility. He talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being a peacemaker, being meek, and so on. These different ways that Jesus taught us how to live, this is our saltiness. And if you want to be a follower of Christ, then you've got to be salty. And sometimes... People are going to look at your saltiness. They're going to say, I like what you're doing there. I like that. 
And other times they're going to say, I hate your guts and I want you dead. That's the way it is. But that shouldn't change our distinctive flavor. My wife and I went to Austin, Texas once, and we saw this slogan all over town. If anyone's been to Austin, Texas, they use this slogan, and I guess a couple of other cities have picked this up since then, keep Austin weird. It's on all the small businesses there. I don't really want to comment about Austin, Texas. I'll just say the food's good, uh, that's for sure. But it is kind of a weird place, I, I'll agree. Uh, they have these like bats that hide under a bridge, and they come out, and it's like, what is this? What about your faith? Keep Christianity weird. That's the saltiness. Don't become bland where you just fit in with everyone else around you and you're insipid. No, stay salty. Is that even a phrase, stay salty? It should be a phrase if it's not. If you swap out Christ's teachings for the world's fads and whims, you'll result in a compromised Christianity that is as useful as flavorless salt. Can you imagine your scrambled eggs and you put your salt on there and there's no flavor in that salt? Can you imagine how terrible and useless you would think that salt is if that happened to you? And you'd be taking the bite and maybe you'd taste the graininess of the salt, but no flavor. What would you do with that salt in that salt shaker? Get rid of it. You'd investigate the matter. How did my salt lose its saltiness? Our salt doesn't lose its saltiness, but if you're in the ancient world, I think it was a possibility because they didn't have such pure salt like we have. A lot of times it was collected from the Dead Sea. There'd be other minerals in there. That was a, a possibility, I think, for them. So Jesus, once again, I want to read that. Uh, 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, be the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. The only question is, are you going to be salty or are you going to be flavorless? It's not like the earth has some sort of other salt. It's not like God's got like, you know, some other group of people that are called to do what you're called to do. We are the salt of the earth. Either we're going to be salty or we're not going to be salty. And then the next one, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Should we cloister? Should we keep our faith private? This is a picture of a clifftop monastery in Meteora, Greece. What kind of impression do you think this architecture communicates to the people who live outside of this community? We put 5,000 stairs so that you wouldn't climb it, right? I don't know how many stairs there are. But I mean, it's just, I mean, you can see this. These are probably all stairs here and here and here. I don't want to condemn all monasteries in the world or throughout time. But I want to say, I want to ask this question. If you are holed up in the middle of nowhere, in a cave, or on top of a cliff, or on some deserted island, or if you're hidden out in the woods, living off with no other people around that you ever interact with, like some of these communes are these days, how are you going to be the light of the world? How are you going to be the light of the world if, you're, if, if, you, if there's nobody nearby you, right? If there's no one to shine that light on. Verse 14 again, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let's go over to Isaiah chapter 2. 
So Jesus really says two things here. One is that you're the light of the world, and the other is that a city on a hill cannot be hidden, uh, especially if it's at night and all the lights are on in the city. It cannot be hidden. But even during the day, if a city is on a hill, and if you're nearby, you see the city. You can hide a city that's in a valley, maybe, if you're far away from it. But if you're on a hill, it's easy to see, just like the nose on your face. It's conspicuous. That's the way your faith is supposed to be. That's your Christianity, right? So the salt tells us that your faith is supposed to be, have a distinctiveness to it. It's not supposed to be the same as common sense. I'm not saying that, like, everything that people say is common sense is, is stupid. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that there's a distinctiveness to standing there and walking and following Christ. Think about it for a second. You're following a Middle Eastern rabbi whose teachings are 20 centuries old. That's weird. That is weird. Just own it. Stay weird. <laughs> just embrace the weirdness. There's a saltiness to our faith. It's not bland. It's not just going to be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, okay, it's common sense. There is, there is a difference. But then beyond that, we're also to be the light of the world. It says in Isaiah 2, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to, up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is going to happen. Look at verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Ultimately, God is going to have a city on a hill. Whether you do anything to lift a finger to help or not, this is his prophecy. This is one of many prophecies about what God's going to do in the future. And what he's going to do is he's going to elevate his city and then people are going to flock to it. What I find so strange about this prophecy is not the hill and, and God's law and, and his righteousness and all that. That makes sense. It's the nations. The nations. That sticks out to me. You see that at the end of verse 2? All the nations shall flow to it. Now, if he said, Israel shall be blessed, I would be like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. All the nations, God has always had a heart for all the nations, for the Jews and the Gentiles, for people who are already Christians and those who are outside of the church, who don't understand the true message of salvation. He wants those people, too. And it says, all the nations will flow to it. Verse 3, and many peoples. It doesn't say people. It says peoples. And that's not a typo. That's different people groups. So it's not just more than one person, but it's different people groups. Many peoples will come and say, let, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Come on, let's go up there. That's God's dream. That's God's vision 
for the future, is that his presence will be established in the city on a hill, and many people will come and say, you know, let's, let's go up there and learn from him what is the instruction of the Lord, what is his path of righteousness. And then, of course, verse 4, famously inscribed across the street on a wall opposite the United Nations headquarters in New York City, talks about how the nations are not going to fight anymore. That would be good. That would be a good thing. And that this is part of God's vision for the future, is that in the kingdom age, there would be peace. Now, what God ultimately wants for our world, I believe, is going to happen. It's going to happen with you or without you. This is God. If he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. This is his dream. He's going to make it reality. And then when he calls Christ, and this is a prophecy about Christ, Isaiah 49, 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. God's saying about his suffering servant who he's going to send, which we know ultimately was Jesus, it's too easy, it's too small for you just to, to save Israel. It's, just, it's not enough. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. The messianic role that God prophesied through Isaiah for Jesus is not just for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but that through Christ, salvation would reach to the end of the earth. This is big. And notice this same phrase again, a light for the nations. Look, it says a light for the nations. It says it right there. That's the Messiah's mission. So we have this prophecy that ultimately God's going to set up his city on a hill and all nations are going to stream to it. And we have uh, the fact that Jesus in his mission is called to be a light to the nations to bring salvation to the end of the earth. And then Jesus says to you, he says to his followers, you are the light of the world. That's his commissioning. He's, he's the one that's supposed to be a light to the nations, right? He shares his commissioning with you. It's, now it's your commissioning. It's your commissioning now to be the light of the world. And it says in um, verse 15, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to be the trailer for the big movie. Remember back in the old days, they made movies? People went to the movies. There was always like a big summer movie every year. I don't know if they're still doing that, but... Uh, Eventually, they'll probably get back to it, and it'll be on HBO Max first or whatever. But uh, the, the idea is that there's a trailer, and, and that gets everybody excited about what is to come. That's you. You're the trailer for the kingdom. If people are looking at you and looking at how you are with your friends, and they're thinking to themselves, man, if these people are an indication of what God's going to do with the world, we're in trouble, then you're doing it wrong. You know, we're supposed to be modeling the shalom of the age to come. And shalom is, you know, we usually translate it peace, but it's bigger than that. It's wholeness. It's the, the completeness that God intends to bring about. 
We are supposed to be the appetizer for the main course. That we're giving people a little taste of what is to come. Or a road sign. We're a road sign for what's coming up next on the highway. That's our role as individuals and as a group. And it's awesome. I, I, think, it's, I think it's really cool. There is a responsibility there, too, that we represent. I came home yesterday from our men's conference. Yesterday was really hot, wasn't it? What, what do you think the high was? Seemed more like in the 90s to me, but you know, I don't know. My car never tells the truth, you know. You get in there, and it's like 200 degrees. I'm like, ah! <laughs> Drive for five minutes, like 88 or something, you know. But it, it was real hot yesterday, I, and I, I drove home. Yesterday was a really big day in my neighborhood. My particular neighborhood has a, uh, a massive garage sale every summer where all of the, well, I mean, not all, but every street, there's at least one person having the garage sale, and you know, they're selling all their, their stuff. My dad calls these garbage sales. Uh, see your point there. Uh, so everybody's got their stuff out, and they're trying to sell it. So you got cars coming through the neighborhood. It's just it's popping. And while I was at men's conference, I came home. It was real hot. I came home, and in front of my house, there was a sign. There were two tables, two coolers, and there was a sign that said, free bottled water, take one. And I was thinking to myself, that's salty. That's salty. Giving away free water on a day when it's 90 plus degrees and people are out walking around and, you know, everybody's trying to find a deal, but they're sweating and, you know, maybe they didn't think to bring water. Yeah, that's a little salty. Come to find out it wasn't even my wife's idea. It was the real estate agent down the road trying to make a good impression. But still, it was salty, okay? I thought it was my wife, and I was like, man, she's, I married just the salty woman. Yeah, she's a real salty woman. We got to take back the word salty. I think it means something else a lot of times, but uh, we have a saltiness, but we're also to shine our light. So it's not just that we're different, but that we're also are projecting that. We're illuminating. And whether that's in your home, how are you going to shine your light in your, in your home? Let me ask you this. Somebody got a flashlight on their phone? Who can pull that out real quick and just turn it on? Just Okay, uh, Angela, one, maybe Jen, or Tim. Okay, well, all three of you. Just go ahead and, and shine those lights straight up. What kind of an impression does that make on the room, those lights? Zero. Zero. They don't, they don't light up the ceiling more. They don't light up my face more. You know, maybe like right in front of you, it makes a little, you can turn them off, it makes a little brightness, but it doesn't do much. You know why? We've already got a bazillion lights on in this room. I mean, look at all these lights. There are dozens of lights lit in this room. You guys don't even see the spotlights here. And I, well, I guess those are off, but, you know, the, all along the sides there. We've got so many lights on in this room that when you turn another light on in this room, you know what happens? Nothing. You don't notice it at all. When there's a lot of lights on and you turn on another light, it doesn't do much. But let me tell you something. If you come into a room that's pitch black, and even if you just have the smallest little light, it makes a big difference. 
That's just the way light works. So it is in your life. If you're in your home, and the only people who you allowed in your home are Christians, how are you going to shine your light? Unless you welcome an unbeliever into your home occasionally for dinner or, or to hang out or have a barbecue or whatever it is you do, how are you ever going to shine your light unless you bring darkness and then you shine your light? Light's proper role is to illuminate darkness. So in a sense, we need darkness in order to shine our lights. Same thing here. We want people to come here that are in darkness. No, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Some people think the church is just for the sanctified, for the holy. And we do believe in sanctification. We just sang a holiness song a few minutes ago. But there is another aspect in which we want people to come in and experience God and experience God's people and to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so this is a place where they can do that. Your home is a place where they can do that. What about at work? You can let your light shine at work as well. These are all different ways to do it. I was thinking of an example of this because I know that sometimes we think, oh, you know, it's so bad these days. This is a Christian book called Diognetus. It comes to us from probably around the 2nd century, maybe 3rd century after Christ. So a long time ago when the Romans were in charge and the Romans didn't like Christians very much yet. Eventually the Romans became the Roman Catholics and they favored Christianity. This is before that where the Romans were worshiping the, uh, the old gods. And I thought this description of what Christianity was like really sets an example, a standard for us. Because look, we are not some new upstart religious movement. We have been around. We have deep roots that go for centuries, for millennia. We could literally claim to go back to the beginning. Right? Is that where our book starts? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is just one of the, the voices along the way. He writes, For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. We're not weird for weirdness sake. We don't wear our shirts backwards. We're not just a bunch of eccentrics here. Verse 3, this teaching of theirs has not been discovered by the thought and reflection of ingenious people, nor do they promote any human doctrine as some do. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs and dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkably and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. That's a practice where if you had a child you didn't want, you would just ditch him outside, and the child would die of exposure. Very common in this world. Number seven there. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. 
They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they blessed. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Kind of reminds you of the words of our Lord. Rejoice in that day when you are persecuted, because so they did to the prophets. 17. By the Jews they are assaulted as foreigners, and by the Greeks they are persecuted. Yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. I'd like to close in Isaiah 25. There have been times in church history when we as Christians have been called to be salt and light in difficult times. When we got our start in the Roman Empire, it was a difficult time for us. We were persecuted heavily at times. I was thinking about Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer during the Nazi period in the 1940s, 30s and 40s in Germany and how the Christians there banded together. They, they put together a document called the Barman Declaration. And in the Barman Declaration, they said, the government does not control the church. And they were saying that to Hitler's face. And that was a tough time to be a Christian in Germany, let me tell you, to stand up for your faith and to get persecuted. There have been other times in the Middle Ages where you stand up for your faith and your life could be at risk. But yet, it doesn't matter what generation, what age you're in, you are still the salt of the earth. You are still the light of the world. Isaiah 25, verse 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. I go to this prophecy to close because of the word reproach here. Reproach is an insult, a taunt, something shameful that people say about you. In that day, when this happens on the last day, that reproach that hangs over you for being salt and for being light, he's going to take away. And in that day, verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Look, it's going to be hard if you're the salt of the earth, if you're the light of the world, but it's worth it. Because in the end, yeah, we wait, but in the end we say, this is our God for whom we have waited. This is our Lord. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What'd you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 436 Salt and Light would love to hear your comments there. Also, I have an article with much of the same content available in the show notes for this episode. And I wanted to take a moment also to promote 
Salt and Light Study Night, which is a Zoom group currently meeting on Tuesday evenings, Eastern Standard Time. And it's a great place to join an online Bible study if you're interested in getting together with other believers. This meeting is coordinated by John and Paula Ely, as well as John and Anna Brown. So if you're looking for some more Bible study and you're just not getting enough, maybe you live far away from other like-minded believers, then this would be a great opportunity for you to get involved. And they have a Facebook group called Salt Light Study Night, which you can find a link to in the show notes for this episode. Or you can email them, saltlightstudynight at gmail.com, and get more information about the Zoom link there. Also, I put another few episodes in the show notes for you to consider if you're interested in more on the teachings of Jesus or Christian living in general. It's such a key part of authentic Christianity, not just believing the right things, which I think is important, but also living them out, and especially in a contested culture where we have the opportunity to be a contrast society to the reigning paradigms that, from where I sit, certainly appear to be tearing our world apart, at least socially speaking. Additionally, we've gotten in a number of comments on the recent blog post on sin, really getting into the nitty-gritty. Are we guilty of Adam's sin? And then we have another post coming out very shortly on whether or not we have a corrupted nature and what that corrupted nature is. And we have three options there for you to consider. The totally free option, the depraved and free option, and then last of all, the totally depraved option for the corrupted nature. So stay tuned for that. That is not going to be a podcast episode, at least not in the near future. It's just going to be on restitutio.org. So take a look there if you're interested in delving deeper into the theology of sin, which is I've come to study it and write about it, is an important topic that undergirds a lot of other doctrines and assumptions we have and that we bring to our Christianity and to our reading of the Bible. So take a look at that. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.